The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. Our guest today is Paul Mitchell, the numbers cruncher extraordinaire and campaign strategist. I try to come up with a different intro each time. So, yeah. Paul, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Hello. And my first question is about uh, Connor Lamb. Uh, he, in, Pennsylvania, in the Pennsylvania 18th, a Democrat who won, according to him, and I think according to NBC and New York Times, I also called it finally. Yeah, it was uh, a lamb slide. It was a I, didn't, I never did see the a, the AP's call. I was waiting for that. And I never saw it. I don't know if they ever wound up getting into well, it or not. Jared Huffman called it on Twitter on my and a response to me on Twitter at like ten o'clock our time. So I just went to bed. Go I figured it. it was done. But did when did Ron um, Fournier call it? <laughs> years later. Um, but the question I had was one of the issues that came up in that race was the fact that Connor Lamb, a Democrat ran at a distance, was distancing himself from Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Pelosi's name. You know, it's toxic in many Republican districts. He, a Democrat in this district that Trump won by 20 points or more in 2016, he's distancing himself from Pelosi, said he wouldn't follow Pelosi's orders, didn't make a blanket statement, but, you know, that was, kind of, that was the implication. So my question is, is that a learning lesson for California Democrats who want to flip seats now held by Republicans? Well, it's actually interesting because when you start talking about this district, um, it invites this whole conversation about nationally all these races that have happened and in a number of different ways, how applicable are these quote unquote lessons uh, when it comes to California races? Uh-huh. And, you know, if you, t- if you talk about, uh, you know, Democrats trying to pick up these Republican seats, you could think of candidates on two ends of a spectrum. One end of a spectrum would be, let's get the most moderate, 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 maybe even conservative Democrat uh-huh. who can have greater crossover appeal, maybe be less offensive to Republicans, uh, maybe be a little bit insulated from the, you know, you're a San Francisco liberal uh, kind of arguments and win that way. The other end of the spectrum is what I would call kind of the Carl Rowe strategy, which was go all out for your base because – a Connor Lamb in a Orange County congressional district might just not energize those low uh, turnout voters mm-hmm. who really need a champion to get out there and fight for and really need somebody who excites them to turn out. Okay. The Carl Rowe strategy is – Maybe different ethnicity, different gender, some – You're just – the Carl Rowe strategy is go to your base. The red meat issues for your base – and get use that to motivate your base to turn out in higher numbers, and that that's a better strategy than trying to get the most milk toast or, you know, most conservative candidate that can get crossover votes. There's, there's, you know, essentially two different theories. Uh-huh. And what's funny is I don't know that the Democrats in California can necessarily choose the candidate in these races. You've got, you know, eight, ten, twelve Democrats running in a race. Um, I don't think the DCCC is going to be able to come down and say, in this district, we want to have a Connor Lamb-type candidate who's going to motivate not as many people and be kind of like a little bit boring, but also not be as, as prone to getting attacked. And in this other district, we want to have a kind of a Bernie Sanders progressive healthcare for all Democrat because that's going to increase turnout 
really drive these millennials to the polls, really overwhelm the Republicans with the base from the Democratic side. So we can have these conversations about these two different ends of the spectrum and how you can potentially win either from a kind of go to your base strategy or a offend the opposing party the least kind of, you know, co-op some of the, yeah. the platforms of the opposing party and be more moderate and win that way. Do the, um, do the Democrats see the millennials as part of their base? Oh, yeah. So the overarching strategy then for Democrats is to get that millennial that piece of the base engaged and get them to the polls. Is that? Yeah. So the, you know, when you look at some of these races in 2018, these congressional races, particularly the ones like in Orange County, the, the voters that made Orange County go blue and vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 were people who live in apartments, young people, Latinos, and kind of second generation Asians. And yeah, I think there was a, there was a poll out that showed Vietnamese people by age, how they voted, and if it was under 35, oh, yeah. they were tremendously more democratic than I just did a elders. tweet on that, too. Yeah. yeah, there's this... It's amazing. I mean, I've always had this kind of thing. I say, like, it would be fun to put together a focus group where on one side you had, you know, 24 to 35-year-old Vietnamese, and on the other side you'd have their parents. And they wouldn't agree on anything politically. I mean, just there's this whole switch that happens. Um, and it's strong. It's also happens in Latino community and other communities, but it's really strong in the Vietnamese community. Mm -hmm. But the population that turned Orange County blue with high turnout in the presidential election is exactly the population that if you look at past gubernatorial election cycles, that's the population that doesn't turn out. And that's a population that if you looked at that population in, in the most recent LA uh, countywide and citywide races in 2017, that's the population that was 75% turnout in the presidential governor's uh, presidential race in 2016. And then a calendar year later or less, they were 7% turnout. Wow. So you, uh, that's one of the challenges going into this 2018 election cycle for Democrats is how in the world can you get those young people to turn out in the same rate in a gubernatorial election where traditionally they don't vote? Um, and get them to turn out the rate that they would closer to what you would see in a presidential election. That's how they pick up those seats. So is Trump engaging them? I mean, is Trump sort of forcing the engagement? What's going on in D.C.? Is that sort of sucking the oxygen out of yeah. everything? But is it Well, we had a really interesting conversation here on a prior podcast that listeners can look to when we sat down with EMC, the polling firm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they looked at was how much is Trump driving people's engagement in politics, particularly among these voters, the new registrants, the younger voters. And what they found was that you had, you know, huge percentages of these voters who are uh, engaged and say that they're likely going to vote in a future election and huge numbers that uh, say they've even participated in a protest. Now, after that podcast, we had the L.A. races and we realized that more people in L.A., based on that polling, participated in a protest than actually voted in the election. That's so this is one of these challenges for those of us who are in this stodgy old business of elections. Like, people are engaged in politics. They've got stuff on their Twitter feed. They're, going to, they're marching out of school yesterday. They're uh, on Facebook and social media. They're engaged. You know, they, uh, uh, there's this real kind of, like, passion that's being developed by this polarized national conversation that we're having. And the challenge is 
we know for older people, for homeowners, for more white and conservative voters, we know that that polarization and engagement translates to finding the ballot, putting a stamp on it, mailing it in. But what we've never seen is that that passion and engagement really in a gubernatorial election cycle result in a young person who's probably moved since the 2016 general, maybe has to re-register, um, a young person who uh, you know, is engaged in social media but doesn't see voting for a state insurance commissioner as a way of mm-hmm. you know, effectuating that. So that's the challenge on the left is to take these, these passionate, engaged young people and get them to participate in the way that their parents do, which is voting. Is the DCCC a real factor in these races? Uh, sometimes Washington doesn't come up with the money on the Republican side or the Democratic side. It's hard prying money out of them for campaigns. And so the donors tend to be more local than from D.C., who's pushing for you know control of the House, for example, yeah. for the Dem. Well, that's uh, particularly... Are they a big yeah. factor? They will be. They're, what's really interesting is... Uh, in political circles in California, oftentimes there's this view that the national organizations on the Democratic and Republican side don't do as much in California, largely because we're not a heavy swing state. So, uh, you know, in the 2016, when I first got involved in campaigns in 1992, local wow. candidates for God, the legislature, really I know. I know. local wow. candidates in 1992 were saying, well, there's no money being spent by D.C., in California races like they were spending money in other states. Well, that was because California wasn't a swing state. Um, now, in this, uh, in this path that the DCCC is envisioning to get to Republican control, they have to pick up seats in California. Yeah. So I think there is going to be that kind of national dollars and engagement coming to California in a way that hasn't before. Well, because really, it, it's pivotal that if they're going to take on these 24 seats where Hillary won, seven of those that are held by Republicans, seven of those are in California. Well, and here's a question. So I know that in Georgia, in the Ossoff seat, and to some degree in Doug Jones' Senate race, the DCC was seen as as something you didn't want to attract. In other words, with Doug Jones, I think the DCC made sure that they were not shown until the very end of the race as really supporting him because they wanted to distance themselves from the Democratic establishment and sort of run as outsiders. I think maybe Lamb did this a little bit, but certainly Doug Jones and John Ossoff tried that. And in California, is that going to be an effect? Do you think in a race, say, in Fresno or Visalia, um, could it benefit a Democrat to be seen as distancing himself from the Democratic National Committee and not taking money there and raising money elsewise, or is that just not an issue in California? Well, it might be an issue in some of those localized races like you're mentioning, if you're talking about like the Valadeo race or the Denim race. You know, there might be an issue of, you know, D.C. and and so on. The challenge is that, um, you know, these campaigns really need that kind of air support of having, uh, you know, folks who are going to be, you know, making sure that they have the right funding and right, right resources to be able to win. Um, and uh, I think in most cases they'll take, you know, the potential negative hit uh, that comes with the resources that you need to win. Now, there is a, a different issue essentially maybe in the primary election. Where in the primary election, uh, folks at the DCCC and other 
folk, other big organizations that are trying to affect the outcome of the races, they look at some of these districts and they see like eight or 12 or however many Democratic candidates running and they wish they could do something to kind of like cull the field or to, mm-hmm. um, you know, get a candidate the chance to win, a better chance to win. We recently had an endorsement process of the Democratic Party, and that's going to be a part of it potentially. Um, and then there's other groups like Emily's List It would be another good example that have gone into congressional races and tried to, you know, help it, you know, first off, make sure a Democrat makes the runoff. Um, and then on top of that, make sure that the candidate they feel is most uh, able to pick up that seat is the one who wins. They Maybe they're thinking that somebody who is too liberal in the ISA district might not win. Or maybe they're thinking that somebody who isn't progressive enough in the ISA district might not turn out the Democratic votes that they need to actually be successful. Um, sometimes you get into a situation where um, a national organization can come, kind of be a distraction uh, because of their attempts to try to influence who's going to make that runoff. But overall, the DCCC, I think, is going to have a much stronger positive impact on candidate success uh, in those races as they're trying to pick up seats. Do you see a lot of these seats? Do you see any of these seats actually flipping? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Ro- for Congress, uh, uh, yeah. Royce, um, the ISIS seat. Uh, Mimi Walters, her name keeps popping up here in, Norton, in Newport Beach, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the most conservative district? Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Newport Beach. Um, so the, this is the challenge. Um, yeah, we do see these congressional districts being more vulnerable than we've ever seen them. Um, does that mean that they'll flip in 2018, gubernatorial cycle, generally a little bit better for Republicans? Or does it mean they're going to flip in 2020? Uh, or are they going to flip in 22 after we have um, a new round of redistricting? That there's kind of this sense of that being inevitable, um, that there are a number of districts where, you know, continually, uh, especially like a coastal Republican district where continually the base voters are getting more progressive. And uh, and so, you know, that demographics is destiny argument kind of comes yeah. into play a little bit. Um, does will they flip this year? Does, does turnout play into that? Oh, as yeah. Well? Turnout's, more a turnout is, turnout's okay. a huge impact of it. Yeah. Now, the challenge is, like, if we were to step back and look at the landscape nationally and try to put California in the national context. So nationally, after – in the 2010 and 2014 elections, if you were to look at seats in the state legislature – there were 991 Republicans picking up Democratic seats nationally in that period of time. Um, in 2010, uh, it was a huge wave, Republicans picking up everywhere, California being the exception. In California, we actually picked up a Democratic seat here in the district that was held by, that is, was held by Dr. Pan, the assembly seat. And um, nationally, there are still 1,100 and some elected officials in governor's office, the legislature, and Congress that are seats where the Republicans picked up and won and held formerly Democratic-held seats. These are anti-Obama wave elections that resulted in an additional 1,100 seats where you could see them in a anti-Trump wave kind of being sitting ducks. Mm-hmm. It's 1,100 is a lot of people, a lot of seats to pick up in the legislature, governor, and Congress. What now, percentage of them are in uh, New Hampshire? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what percentage of them are in California. Yeah. Zero. 
Yeah. In California, there's not one elected official in the legislature, Senate or Assembly, any statewide office, con- Congress, mm-hmm. or the governor, who was elected as part of these repeated anti-Obama waves, particularly in gubernatorial election cycles. Not one who has, was elected in one of those and still holds office. So when you look at low-hanging fruit, you could say we have districts in California where Hillary won and they're held by Republicans. You could look and say, well, if you know, nationally there's this huge wave, then it's definitely going to hurt Republicans here in California. I think that's true. But the real vulnerability isn't the same as the vulnerability in the rest of the country when you step back and look at it. Mm-hmm. The low-hanging fruit really are those people who got elected in these anti-Obama waves, people who me- – members of Congress and members of the legislature here in California who are in office, they survived the 2016 election when Hillary won by huge numbers. The members of Congress from Orange County survived the 2016 election when Hillary won and Democrats won Orange County for the first time in our history. And so – um, when we talk about this wave election, I think we have to be prepared for the wave to be experienced different in California in 2018, almost specifically because the Republican waves were experienced differently here in 2014 and 2010. And so it's kind of like a, a riptide. Anybody who's ever been to the ocean, uh, you know, the bigger waves that come on the shore cause the bigger riptides. And if you're in a part of the beach where the waves are small, the riptides are also not as, as dramatic. So, do the, do the number of Democratic candidates, we're hearing lots, lots more Democrats want to get engaged, want to actually run for office, more women are running for office. Uh, does that work against them? There's, there are all these people that choose, do they basically split the vote somehow? I mean, how does that? So, I mean, there's a challenge that we could have a fluke election like we had in Congressional District 31 when Pete yeah. Aguilar, who was kind of like the anointed, chosen Democratic candidate, um, actually came in third in his first congressional race in 2012, allowing two uh, Republicans to make the runoff, Miller and Dutton. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a fluke. That hasn't happened anywhere else in the state since then. But it could happen again this cycle. Think of the Dana Rohrabacher race. Dana Rohrabacher, eight Democratic candidates, a total field of 20 candidates running. And who files papers at the very end? Scott Baugh. Now, Scott Baugh is a real name in Orange County, and he's talked about running for this congressional race for a long time. There's a, I would say, distinct possibility that the eight Democratic candidates split up the vote, and it's Scott Baugh and Dana Rohrabacher making into the runoff. And Scott speaks Russian, I understand. <laughs> we don't want. I think that we won't. I think there. Dana's the one that uh, that McCarthy said spoke Russian, um, and uh, so there is this possibility that you'd have this additional fluke. Now, does that mean that that seat's lost to Democrats forever? Probably not. In twenty twenty, that might be a really competitive seat again. Um, but uh, I wouldn't be too terribly surprised if we see one of one of these open primary kind of flukes where. Uh, you know, Democrats are hard charging at a district, and yeah. on election night they find out the door got closed because the top two vote getters end up being Republicans. Well, we'll end that on flukes. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for <laughs> doing this again. You. Thank you we very really much. Appreciate it. We go on forever on this. This is fascinating. Yes. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Sure. And this is John Howard. We will see you next time around. Thank you.